if you have Deuteronomy 32 open, let's start there. Um, one thing, and it was a lot, I know that, and in Deuteronomy 32 might not be super well known to you, or it's maybe been a long time since you've read it. Um, if you were really listening and you were actively trying to make connections, I think it's pretty obvious, and we'll get here in a few minutes, the passage that Kristen read at the end, Philippians 2. Now, Paul was a Jewish rabbi before he became a Christian, and so for all I know, he had Deuteronomy 32 memorized. So I don't know if he actually had it open as a scroll in Hebrew, but whether in his mind or in the text, Paul had Deuteronomy 32 open when he wrote Philippians 2. There are connections and connections and connections there. And, and here's the first thing I want you to notice, is that if you just go a little past Deuteronomy 32, you'll see Deuteronomy 33 is kind of another kind of like long poem or song that kind of walks through the 12 tribes of Israel. Then chapter 34 in Deuteronomy is very short, and it probably in your Bible says something like the death of Moses at the top. This is at the very end of the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and this is the end of the 40 years in the wilderness. Now, keeping your finger there, I want you to go back, not all the way to Genesis, but all the way back to Exodus, and by the way, if you don't have one yet or you lost it, we have more of these bookmarks that Helen put together for us that have all of our passages from the wilderness theme. And if you have your bookmark, you can see that the wilderness story starts in Exodus 15. I want you to note, look at Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is where all the movie versions of the Exodus stop, which is Pharaoh and his army have been destroyed. They cross through the Red Sea and they have this incredible party and they sing this song on the other side. And usually that's like the final scene of the Exodus movies. Maybe they fast forward a little to the giving of the Ten Commandments. This is basically where it stops. And I want you to notice that Deuteronomy 32 called that passage that Jen read out loud for us, the Song of Moses. But notice that Exodus 15 at the top is also called the Song of Moses. And so here's one way I want you to think about, not just today, but the 40 years in the wilderness, the 40 years in the wilderness for Israel begin and end with a song of Moses, but they could not be more different than each other. I'm not going to read it out loud, but Exodus 15, the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 18, it is joyful. It is filled with astonishment and confidence in a sense of we thought the story was over and somebody delivered us at the mo last moment. Even if it's on like a small level, like you think you're going to lose your job and then somebody advocates for you and you get to keep the job that you love. You think you're going to get kicked out of school, but the professor has mercy on you. Whatever it is, you think you're broke, but somebody steps in and helps you financially. If you've ever experienced any, you think you're really, really sick and the doctor all of a sudden comes up with a cure when you thought you were never going to feel better again. Those are moments of just pure elation in life. And that's where Israel is on day one of the wilderness journey. Now, on like day, th day three, like three days later, they're already grumbling and complaining, but it starts off really, really well. And they are joyful because they have been slaves for 400 years and Pharaoh has killed their firstborn sons, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them at least, and has pursued them to the, to the water, to the sea, and wanted to murder them in an act of genocide. And now they are looking at the waters that have gone over Pharaoh and his army. It is just this incredible moment. And Moses leads them in this song of praise to God. Now, 40 years later, the tune has changed. 40 years later, the tone is completely different. If you heard Deuteronomy 32 that Jen read, and we didn't even read all of it, yes, there are moments of praise. Yes, there are moments of affirming that God is good, but overwhelmingly, it is pessimistic. Overwhelmingly, Deuteronomy 32 is dark. Overwhelmingly, and, and it's 
it's you know honestly whatever your job is whatever you hope your career is it's it's like the ultimate nightmare of what you don't want your retirement party to be this is moses's retirement party he is about to lay down and he's not going to go into the promised land and he basically says to them from day one until now you guys have been awful and you're only going to get worse after i'm gone see ya and that's moses's final testament will and testament to israel it is filled with bitterness with recrimination, with disappointment, with regret. It is just looking back on 40 years, an entire generation of just constant rebellion, constant grumbling, constant not trusting in God. And the song that Moses leads Israel in at the end of the 40 years could not be more different than the song he leads them in at the beginning of the 40 years in Exodus 15. Now, if you were here last week, I'm just going to do a little review today, not as much as I usually do. Last week was one of the harder sermons you're probably going to hear from me. Um, the whole thing was about how there is real danger in the wilderness. And, and really that that in our culture today, in Western Christianity, there's such a temptation to adopt some form of cheap grace, to say, because Jesus died for me, because I'm already forgiven, it doesn't matter how I live, I don't ever need to feel convicted of sin, I don't ever need to tremble at God's judgment, I don't ever need to worry that if I do what Israel did in the wilderness, that what happened to them will happen to me. And one of the passages we have read over and over, and we'll come back to more in the future, in 1 Corinthians 10, that's exactly the attitude Paul's going after. They, like, like if you say like, I'm a Christian, I was baptized. They were baptized too. I'm a Christian. I, I take the Lord's table every week. They had the same spiritual food and the same spiritual drink. That you do. Yeah. Yeah. But I got Jesus. They didn't have Jesus. The rock that followed them was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased and they fell in the wilderness. That the whole point of last week's sermon is that there is real danger in the Christian life. Yes, we've already been redeemed by Jesus, but we have also not yet reached the promised land. And there is still drama in the Christian life, like either comedy or tragedy could still be in the future. On the other hand, and in this sermon series, one of the things I'm trying to do is week after week, alternate between grace in the wilderness and danger in the wilderness. So if you were like feeling heavy last week or still feeling heavy today, today's a grace one, just so you know. And it's a grace one that, that I want to be a response to the danger of last week. The grace of God is always related to the danger that we're in. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, famously said that the goal of every passage of scripture understood rightly is always to do two things to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. Now, last week, my goal was to afflict the comfortable. And so if you're not feeling very comfortable right now because the last week or last week you weren't, great. Today, my goal is to comfort the afflicted. Um, N.T. Wright says this in his great little book, Following Jesus, Christians today seem to me to often divide up pretty much into two groups. The first lot don't think that sin matters very much because they've already been forgiven. That was the group, the mindset that I was talking to last week. The second group, N.T. Wright says, knows perfectly well that sin still matters, but are discouraged because they can't seem to kick the habit. They feel like it's just, it's, it's too hard to get past it, and they're discouraged. And today's sermon, today's message is really focused more on that, that if last week was about the urgency that we need to feel as we follow Jesus, today, the main tone that I want you to feel by the end of the sermon is confidence is a sense of confidence as we won the race that has been set before us. And so I want you to jump ahead with your fingers still in Deuteronomy 32, because we will go back there. We need to jump ahead to our main text, Philippians 2. 
Philippians 2. There are many reasons we read lots of scripture out loud before the sermon so that we hear the whole counsel of God, Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus, Paul, not just the parts that we like, but the whole message of it. Some of it is to connect the dots between passages to, to set up the sermon. Part of it is also just to, over time, if you were a part of neighborhood church for 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years, I hope that you would get to know the Bible really well. Many Christians, even if they go to church every week, are often today, and I don't want to be cranky like some old guys like the good old days. There have never been good old days in a fallen world. But nonetheless, it is true that pound for pound, we are on average far more biblically illiterate than most previous generations of Christians are. And part of what we need, not the only thing, not even the main thing, but nonetheless, an important thing is biblical literacy. And to do that, I want to point something out that, that you could read our passage that Christian read for us in Philippians 2. We started in the more famous part, verses 5 through 11, where it's the story of Jesus, something called a hymn of Christ. Well, we'll look at that in a second. But our main part is verses 12 through 18, which starts, therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed. And to set it up and to show how it's connected to Deuteronomy 32, some of you will, will have heard this before, have noticed this before. For some of you, this might be new. I want to give you a, a paradigm or, or a way of looking at and asking questions of scripture that I want you to have in mind in the future. And I want to give you an example, which is, the, to put it this way, the New Testament on almost every page is has the Old Testament in view but very rarely tells you that, and very rarely tells you what part of the Old Testament is in view. And that's a problem for us because we don't know the Old Testament. And so unless you tell me it's in Isaiah, I'm not going to know it's in Isaiah because I don't know it. And so let me give you an example. Dale Allison, who is actually one of my graduate school professors, and I'm quoting a book of his, one of the most brilliant scholars I've ever met. He's, he's arguably the world's leading authority on the gospel of Matthew. Can you imagine that? Like, 8 billion human beings, yeah, I, I know the gospel of Matthew better than the other 7.99999 billion of them, and, and he really does. He wrote a three-volume major commentary on it, and, and pointing out how Jesus teaches and how the, the, the New Testament in particular works, he gives this example of you have all heard, maybe you've even seen it on YouTube, you certainly read at least excerpts of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. And here's something that Dale Allison points out about it. He says, MLK's famous I Have a Dream speech greatly enlarges its meaning through tacit references to famous predecessors. I mean, you hear that phrase, through tacit, that is, he doesn't tell you that he's quoting things, but if you know what he's doing, you know he's alluding to other things in, in history in the past and famous things that you should know. And so he points out that, for instance, the first line in the I Have a Dream speech is five score years ago, which, what is that? It's 100 years. But why say five score years ago? Because it alludes to the beginning of the Gettysburg Address. And he wants you to be thinking, he wants you to be connecting the dots between the 1960s civil rights movement and the civil war with Abraham Lincoln. He wants you connecting the dots there. And then Allison goes on to give some excerpts from the speech and point out if you hear what's behind them, you hear so much more. So here's a couple of quotes from the I Have a Dream speech that Allison points out. There's so much more under the surface that if we're more literate culturally, we would pick up on. Here's the first quote. MLK says, this sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until there is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. It's a line from MLK. 
especially the summer of our illegitimate discontent. Maybe you hear like that, that kind of sounds familiar. And Allison points out that that echoes the line, now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer, which is the opening line from Shakespeare's Richard III. I well, that's interesting, but like, who cares? Keep listening. MLK says later on, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream, which is an allusion to Amos chapter five, verse 24, a Hebrew prophet. He says later on, MLK, it is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all human beings are created equal. Now, if you don't know it, he doesn't tell you that that's from the Declaration of Independence, but that's from the Declaration of Independence. Then he goes on and he says later on, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places shall be made straight, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, which is from the opening lines of Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort, says my, my God, that redemption is coming in the future. And he connects the civil rights movement to the larger story of God bringing his kingdom into the world. And then finally, MLK, you give more examples, but this is Allison's final example. MLK says, so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. And Allison points out that that takes up the language of an old Protestant hymn that even when I was a kid, you still had to sing sometimes in elementary school called My Country Tis of Thee. And it picks it up. Now, okay, that, that's all interesting. But you can say, well, that, that's just being fancy. Like that's just kind of showing off in some ways. It doesn't really do anything. But Allison concludes by saying this, King's transformation and allusion to these traditional texts was much more than ornamentation. It was rather a studied means of persuading hearts and minds. His echo of the Gettysburg Address was a way of claiming that his cause was the completion of what Lincoln began. And when King alluded to Shakespeare, he was telling whites in his audience, you cannot ignore me. I know your European tradition as well as you do. And when he quoted from the Bible, an authority in the 1960s, still not just for the African-American community, but even for the white community, he was in effect asserting God is on my side. And King's embedded quotations from the Declaration of Independence and from Smith's nationalistic hymn announced that he was a patriot, something that many had slandered him for not being during his lifetime, whose dream for his people in particular was actually the fulfillment of the American dream in general. All this he was saying indirectly through illusion. And if you don't know any of those texts behind it, you miss so much of what he's saying. Going back to Philippians 2, Paul is doing exactly what we heard Martin Luther King Jr. doing there. He is describing something to the Philippians with wanting them to pick up what we heard in Deuteronomy 32. So little background here. And again, we're going to focus specifically on verses 12 through 18, where he says, therefore, my beloved, a couple of things about Philippians that maybe you know, maybe you'll remember when I point it out, or maybe it'll be new for you. One is that it's pretty late in Paul's life. It's not an early letter. It's a late letter. These guys became Christians through Paul probably at least five to 10 years ago, maybe longer. And he used to be their pastor in person, but he's basically moved on. And really significantly, when Paul writes this, he is in prison. 
And he's not only in prison, but he says in chapter one that it is possible that he's not going to get out. We actually don't know if he got out of this imprisonment or not. There's a debate about that, but he's there and he's saying, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I know what my desire is, which is to depart and be with Christ, but I also know that you guys, churches in general still need me, so we'll see, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. And the one thing that's clear is that he's writing to an audience that he used to be their pastor and he's not now and he never will be again. Those days are past. And so here's the first thing I want you to notice that Paul's relationship to the Philippians here is parallel to Moses's relationship to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 32. It's, I used to be your leader, but I'm not anymore. I used to be your leader, but I'm not anymore. Second thing I want you to notice, and it's where, because right, you could read Philippians 2, 12 through 18, a bunch of times, and never think about Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. It doesn't mention it explicitly. The first place where maybe you begin to suspect is Paul says, as an exhortation in verse 14, guys, I want you to do all things without grumbling. Grumbling in the Bible is always connected to one story. It's the main word that shows up over and over and over again, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that Israel grumbled in the wilderness. It's the same word that dozens of times will describe the attitude of Israel in the wilderness after God has redeemed them and yet not trusting in him that they grumbled. And he says, I, I want you to do all things without grumbling. Okay, you say, well, yeah, but grumbling, more and more people than just the, the Israelites in the wilderness grumble, which is true. But now it becomes explicit so that, verse 15, you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, you heard Kristen read that, but you also heard Jen read that. Go back to Deuteronomy 32 and keep your finger there in Philippians 2. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses says about the generation that came out of Egypt, and now 40 years later, overwhelmingly is not going to get to enter the promised land. Look at verse 5 in Deuteronomy 32. They, not the Canaanites, not the Philistines, not the unbelievers, the Israelites, the ones redeemed from slavery in Egypt, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Paul is quoting that in Philippians 2 but in a completely upside down way. In Deuteronomy 32, it's an accusation. In Philippians 2, it's a don't be like everybody else that is like that. He actually distances the Philippians from it. Now, jump down from verse 5 to verse 20. And it says, God said, I will hide my face from them, this wilderness generation, and I will see what their end will be because they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. Did you notice that Paul quoted that in Philippians 2? A perverse and crooked generation. Instead, you are to be children of God, shining his lights in the world, that he is echoing phrases and words from Deuteronomy 32. Now, keep your finger there, but go back to Philippians. We're going to jump back one more time each way. Here's something that you could read a hundred times, and I did for many years, and have no sense that Paul is doing something bigger. And this is where you really, I think, begin to hear how profoundly different being a Christian is from being part of the people of God in the old covenant, which would be one of our, probably our big theme today. Paul says in verse 12 of Philippians 2, therefore, my beloved, even that tone, like, like right, that's, that's positive, joyful. Moses's tone in Deuteronomy 32 is not therefore, my beloved. That's not the tone. Paul is saying, therefore, my beloved. And then he says this dual thing about them. 
as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as when I was with you in person as your pastor, in my presence, but now, not only still, but much more in my absence now that I'm gone. Hear that? You obeyed while I was with you, while I was present with you. How much more am I confident that you will obey now that I'm gone in my absence? Go back to Deuteronomy 32. Before Moses actually starts this song, and it kind of turns to poetry in chapter 32, verse 1, look at the final paragraph of Deuteronomy 31 where Jen started. And let's start in verse 27. And again, what a bitter kind of like retirement party for this to be the last thing that Moses ever says to Israel. Moses says to Israel in verse 27, I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive and still with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death when I'm gone? Do you hear it? Paul is alluding to that, but he is turning it upside down. And he is, if 1 Corinthians 10 puts the Corinthians in the same position as the Israelites and the wilderness, this passage puts us in a very different position. And if Moses is the ultimate pessimist in Deuteronomy 32, you have sucked for 40 years and you're going to continue to suck even more after I'm gone, which is what he's saying, and which is what the rest of the Old Testament story bears out. Here's Paul saying, I have seen you walk faithfully with Jesus, my entire pastoral ministry with you, and I know you're going to grow even more after I'm gone. That could not be a more marked difference of tone. And the single question I want to answer today is, what the heck happened that Paul can end his ministry in the complete opposite way that Moses can end his ministry? And let me just rule out a couple of options. It's not that Paul's a better pastor than Moses. It's not that he's a better teacher than Moses, and it is not that Gentiles are more inclined to obey God than Jews are. Neither of those things is the explanation. The difference is not you, and the difference is not me. It is something else. Something has happened so that Deuteronomy 32, while it's still there, we still need to remember it. We still need to take it into account. Nonetheless, it is not the tone of the new covenant anymore. And so let me move this over here. Go back to Philippians 2. Let's stay there. Um, for now, I, I want you to notice one thing, and then you can think about this more on your own, pursue it. In chapter two, and this is where Christmas started in Philippians two, verses five through 11, what a beautiful summary of the story of Jesus. Jesus, verse five of Philippians two, had this attitude or this mindset in him, and it is now to be adopted by us. What was the attitude? Well, on the one hand, verse six, even though Jesus was in the form of God and he didn't, he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, probably better as something to be used for his own advantage. It was there, it's not bad, but he didn't use it for himself, that privilege. What did he do with it? He emptied himself of that privilege. Instead, he took on the form of a servant he was born in the likeness of men and women like you and I, human beings, and being found in human form, he not only lowered himself to being human from being divine, but he also humbled himself down to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, verse nine, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You have basically all the big events in the story of Jesus. Incarnation, God becomes a human being. Life, death, resurrection, ascension is all right there. 
Now, I want you to notice that our passage, our main passage in verse 12, starts with therefore. He's not like, well, there's Jesus. Now let's move on to something else. He says, therefore, because that happened in the story of Jesus, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Those two verses, verses 12 and 13, is where we're going to land the rest of today. We're going to think about what does that actually mean? Why can we have confidence about that? How do we do that? But for now, I want you to notice that in verse 12, a therefore connects what Jesus did with our existence in the wilderness today as God's people still called as much as Israel, not to grumble, but nonetheless with, with Paul being confident about our journey through the wilderness in a way that is markedly different than Moses's pessimism about Israel's original journey through the wilderness. Now we notice that the main word that connects the story of Jesus in verses five through 11, and then the story of the church in verses 12 and following is the word obey. That Jesus, in verse 8, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, you also not just need to obey, not just should obey, but also I am confident that obedience and not grumbling and faithlessness will be the main note of the church in Philippi. Because, and I ended with this last week, and I didn't flesh it out at all, what 1 Corinthians 10 and many other passages are emphasizing is that we are in the same position that Israel in the wilderness was, which we are. We're not slaves anymore. We're not in the promised land yet. We're right in the middle on the way. That is true. But you could also walk away from that thinking, nothing's changed. Jesus hasn't made any different difference. It's just in 40 years, like two of you are going to make it and the rest of you are going to fall away. And it's going to be Moses part two again in every generation of churches, of every generation of Christians. And I said at the very end of the sermon that what needs to also be added to the fact that we, like Israel, are in the wilderness is that in between Israel and the wilderness long ago and the church in the wilderness today is a third wilderness story in between it. That Jesus enters into a showdown with Satan in the wilderness. He is tempted in every way like we are, but he obeys. And what I want you to notice about that, therefore, in verse 12 of Philippians 2, is that the obedience of Jesus is not just great for him. It's not just that he obeyed, whereas Israel failed. It's also a game-changing event for all those who come after him. It also makes obedience not just possible, but normal from then on out for the people of God. Just as much as you look at Israel in the wilderness and say, there's a Joshua and a Caleb every once in a while, but the norm is disobedience. The norm of following Jesus is now obedience and not disobedience. I don't mean perfection by that. I don't mean struggling. I don't mean there's no danger, but the norm has changed. And, and what I want to do in the last few minutes today is, is, is begin to talk about why that is, why we might think that. For now, what I want to do, and, and I don't do this probably as much as I should, I just want to read some passages in the New Testament out loud to you. I just want you to let them kind of like flow over you, just kind of be saturated in them. And, and, and here's the, the context why I'm reading these. Uh, it, it's... It, it is arguably a subjective claim for me to make, but what I want to argue for the last couple of minutes here is that there is a massive tone of shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament with respect to what is expected of God's people. And by expected, I don't mean like, like God expected his people to obey in the Old Testament. He expects us to obey today, but in terms of like, do you really expect that to happen? That there is a massive tone of shift after Jesus 
compared to before Jesus. So Philippians 1, you don't need to turn to any of these. I just want you to listen to it. Philippians 1, Paul says, I I thank God for you guys, because from the first day you became Christians until now, you've been partnering with me in the gospel, and I am confident, I am persuaded, I am sure of this, that the one who started this good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is not the message of Deuteronomy 32. That is not the message of the Old Testament. Same exact word, sure, confident, persuaded, shows up in a lot of passages. Hear this again in light of the wilderness theme, one of probably the most well-known, beloved passages in the New Testament for Christians. Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You've already been redeemed, but you haven't entered the promised land. Between then and then, Are you going to get separated from the grace of God in your life? Are you going to get disconnected from the love of God? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, every single one of those things tripped up Israel over and over and over again in the wilderness. Will it trip us up too? As it is written, God, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. The Christian life is hard. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure, I am confident, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, neither things present or things to come, neither powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear the shift in tone from Psalm 106, from Deuteronomy 30? 32 from all these passages. Hebrews 6, which is a passage we'll look at later in this uh, series, is arguably the most fierce, fiercest warning in the entire New Testament. It, 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 it warns us about turning away from Christ and, and warns us of the disastrous consequences if we do turn away. But then he immediately turns the corner and says, yet even though we speak in this way, giving you these hard warnings, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure confident, persuaded, same word, of better things for you, things that come with salvation. He gives them a warning, and then he immediately says, but I'm persuaded you're not going to do what I just warned you not to do. I am persuaded that part of salvation is not repeating what they did in the wilderness. Hebrews 10, therefore, Christians, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We still need to endure. We still need to persevere, just like Israel in the wilderness. And then he says, and if someone shrinks back, turns away from following Jesus, my soul has no pleasure in him. There's a warning. But then he says this, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's a declaration of confidence. We don't do what Israel did in the wilderness. First Thessalonians is often a benediction or a doxology in church services, including ours in, in, in various seasons. First Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and make your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. That is just not what Moses is saying during his lifetime. 
He is not saying what God started in bringing you out of Egypt, he will surely complete by bringing you in the promised land. Here is Paul at the end of his life saying the exact opposite to a church that he founded a decade or so ago that Moses says to the Israelites who came out of Egypt. And I could read so many more passages. Let me just read you a couple more. In John 10, to put the, Jesus the microphone for a second, because it's been Paul and Hebrews and others. In John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than everyone else, and no one is able to snatch my sheep out of the Father's hand. Do you hear that confidence? Do you hear that sense of what has already begun, not only needs to be completed, but it will be completed? And then in 2 Corinthians 3, and this is a passage that you might go and, and spend some time looking at in the weeks to come. It's one of the passages, like in Philippians 2, where Paul explicitly compares and contrasts his ministry with Moses. And you could read it and think, man, Paul's being cocky here. But he's not being cocky. He doesn't think he's more gifted than Moses. He knows that he is in an objectively better situation than Moses was because he's part of the new covenant rather than the old covenant. And so Paul is referring to, there's these outside teachers who have come in and they've all got Ivy League degrees and they're better public speakers than Paul is. And they're probably better looking than he is. They're more charismatic. And, and one of the things that they seem to have done is they've shown up with their resumes and they've given their resumes to the Corinthians and Paul's got no resume. And in fact, part of the irony of Second Corinthians is that Paul actually starts writing his resume in Second Corinthians. And he's like, I've been beaten this many times. I've been rejected this many times. I had to sneak out of Damascus down a basket and that's his resume. And it's like, that, that's, that's not a great resume, but it is if you're an apostle because that's what an apostle is supposed to look like. But then he says in 2 Corinthians 3, one of the reasons I don't have a resume is because you ourselves are my letter of recommendation. You, myself, you yourselves, Corinthians, are my letter of recommendation because it is written on your hearts to be known and read by everybody else. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone, a reference to the Ten Commandments to the law, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we now have through Christ towards God. Not that we're sufficient to claim anything is coming from us. It's not me. It's not any pastor. It's not any gifted leader. That's not what it is. Rather, the sufficiency comes from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the law, like Moses, but of the Spirit. For the law can only kill, and it killed Israel in the wilderness, but the Spirit gives life. And then he says this, since we have such a hope in Christ, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face. He looks at Deuteronomy 32, and he says, Moses didn't get to enjoy this boldness that I get to enjoy in the new covenant, because he didn't get to pastor a people who not only know God's will outwardly, but have had it written on their hearts through the Spirit. And so let's go back to Philippians 2, and we'll end here. If you haven't guessed already, what's the difference? It's that in the old covenant, God redeemed his people objectively. He led them objectively through the wilderness. He made his will known and his character known. But the Israel that died in the wilderness 40 years later were the same exact people that came out of Egypt 40 years earlier. They were hard-hearted. They were selfish. They were fleshly. They were still slaves of sin. Their hearts had not been changed at all. 
if you are a Christian, the spirit now indwells you and God's will is written on your heart and you are a fundamentally different person than you were when you were a slave to sin in a way that was not true of Israel in the wilderness. Why is Paul so confident in Philippians 2 verse 12? Because he can say to a congregation, not just that they need to still work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is a great phrase to describe last week's sermon. There is still fear and trembling in the Christian life. You need to take God's commands seriously. You need to follow Jesus. You need to endure to the end. But he also says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is working in you, not around you, not towards you, but in you both to will and to accomplish his good pleasure. Now, he doesn't explicitly reference the spirit there, but that is clearly a reference to the promise that the spirit would indwell us in the new covenant. There's one passage that Chris read out in between Jen and um, Kristen that I haven't referenced yet. You could say at this point, yeah, but right, like in 1 Corinthians 10, in the Old Testament, Israel had the spirit. Like the spirit doesn't show up for the first time in Matthew chapter one or Acts chapter two. The spirit is there in the Old Testament. Nick, you even said the pillar of cloud and fire that went before them, that, that was the Holy Spirit guiding them. And it was. So I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit's not there in the old covenant. In John 14, you don't need to turn back here. Jesus says to his disciples, he, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, he is with you and he will be in you. Have you ever noticed that when you turn the pages from the four gospels to Acts, they're like, this is not the same Peter anymore. This is not the same John anymore. This is not the same James anymore. Even during Jesus's earthly lifetime, the spirit is with them. It, it, it's, it's equipping them for some things, but it's not in them. It's not indwelling them yet. If you are a Christian, here's one way I would put it, and this is not original to me. If you are a Christian, one thing that separates you from an Israelite in the old covenant is the presence of sin still remains in your life, but it no longer reigns. For every single Israelite who came out of Egypt, sin was the most powerful motivation on a daily basis in their lives. If you are a Christian, you might think it is, you might feel like it is, but it is not. You are indwelt by the spirit of God and the presence, the power, the desires of the spirit are now the controlling influence in your life. It doesn't happen automatically. It's a slow process, but you have been given a gift in the indwelling of the spirit of God that Israel did not have in the old covenant. That is that sin remains in our life, but it no longer reigns in our life. Michael Bird is a great uh, Australian New Testament scholar I really like, and he tries to sum up the attitude of the New Testament in these two phrases. And, and I, I would encourage you to think about it, that the New Testament has an anthropological pessimism and a pneumological optimism. going to make it more simple, is pessimistic about you and is really optimistic about the Holy Spirit. That the New Testament is, is as pessimistic about you and about me as it is about Israel and Moses, and it is really optimistic about the Holy Spirit. I want you to feel the same pessimism towards yourselves and towards me that we hear in Israel and Moses. I also want you to feel an optimism towards the Holy Spirit that was not true of their situation in the old covenant, that we are given that. One way I would put this practically, and then I'm just going to give you a couple like, like, so what's for now, is if you are a Christian, even if it doesn't feel like this, even if 
you've been habitually doing the wrong things for a long time. One of the ways to describe the difference in your situation right now compared to when you were a non-Christian is when you were a non-Christian, before you were a believer, you, you had choice before you, you had free will, but the choices were sin, other kinds of sin, and other kinds of sin. And those were the choices. When you sin today as a Christian, here's one thing you can never do again. You can't look back and say, I couldn't help it. I couldn't do otherwise. That there is always the ability through the spirit to walk according to God's path rather than according to the desires of our flesh. And that will be something that when we come back to danger next week, we're going to talk about the desires of the flesh are still there but so are the desires of the spirit and the desires of the spirit are stronger in our lives, even if it often doesn't feel like that. And so a couple of things of encouragement at the end, and because this is the already the, the end of our time and I, and I can't get into it more, I'm not gonna, we will later on, we will later on. I'm not gonna talk about, okay, but, but how do I do this, Nick? We'll get there later on. What I wanna persuade you of is more, if you think that you are stuck in sin, if you think that your current experience is the measure of what is possible in your life, I want to convince you just as much as I tried to last week that there is real danger in your life, that you have so many reasons to be confident and optimistic about what the spirit can do in your life. And if you are despairing, if you have a low bar for, I'm glad I'm forgiven and I'm glad I get to go to the promised land one day, but it's kind of just a lot of grumbling and a lot of discontent and a lot of sinning and all this, and I'm just destined to stay there. That's not a good description of where we're at in the story anymore. So the first thing and the most important thing is just want to repeat all of these commands in the New Testament, all of which are saying the same thing. Neighborhood church, be filled with the spirit. Walk by the spirit, not by the flesh. Do not quench the spirit. Do not grieve the spirit. Be filled with the spirit. That is the normal Christian life. I want you to hear that, that a vitality experientially is now available to us. John Stott says this in one of his final books called The Radical Disciple, William Temple, who was another old Christian, used to illustrate the point that Christians really are capable of being fundamentally, not perfectly, but fundamentally faithful, obedient to God through the spirit in this way. And this is William Temple. It's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to go write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it's no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and then just telling me to go live a life like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like his. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like his. God's purpose, Stott says, is to make us like Christ, and God's way is to fill us with his Holy Spirit. And that was not available to Israel in the wilderness. It is available to us as the people of God. Second thing is I would just encourage you, if last week you were like, I don't, I don't like hearing the warnings. I don't like, you know, not feeling happy all the time and always feeling optimistic. I would say whether it's as a result of last week or if your personality and your experience just more like this, yes, there's humility in the Christian life. Yes, there's fear and trembling. But I would also say this, that the overall ethos of your, your emotional attitude as a Christian should be confidence, should be hope, should be joyful expectation that God not only has done something, not only will do something, but is continuing to do something right now and to have an expectation of that. 
And so let me end with this, and this will be our benediction at the end of the service. I've already alluded to this. You don't need to turn here. I want you to just hear this is kind of part of the full counsel of God. Jude, I think I read this or alluded to this a couple of weeks ago. Jude is Jesus's baby brother. And so he grew up with Jesus as his older brother, had no idea who he was. We're told in the gospels that during Jesus's earthly lifetime, he and the rest of his family did not believe that Jesus was who Jesus was. But along with James and along with Mary, they become leaders in the early church later on. And in Jude, which is the second to the last book of the Bible, it's one chapter long, super short, right before Revelation, Jude says this in verse five. Now, I want to remind you, Christians that even though you once fully knew this, you seem to have forgotten it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And that was last week's sermon. I want you to know that is still as relevant for us as it was for them, that they were redeemed and then they did not enter God's promised land. And I want you to know that and not forget that. That's still as relevant for us as it was then. But then he ends the letter by saying, but now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, nothing like that is ever said in the Old Testament. Nothing of that confidence, nothing of that assurance. And so your assurance, let me put it this way as we end, your assurance should be not just that you've already been redeemed as a slave from sin and death, not just that, that, that God is continuing to work in you. You should have assurance and confidence that you will not fall in the wilderness, that you will endure until the end. Not because you're better than the Israelites, not because you have a better pastor than Moses, but because the spirit of God indwells you. And therefore, our wilderness story does not end like their wilderness story did. And we should feel that on a regular basis because the spirit has been poured out on us. So let's be filled with the spirit, neighborhood church, as we continue to follow Jesus. Let me pray.